welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with Nigel Barley. Nigel's written one of my all-time favorite travel books called The Innocent Anthropologist. It's actually a, a trilogy of books that uh, tells the story of his field work in northern Cameroon and also in Indonesia. I studied cultural anthropology at university, and the, the books produced in that genre are famous for their un, unreadability. They tend to be incredibly dull, dealing with kinship charts and uh, systems and structures, but they don't capture the, the life of the people who live in these places or what it's like to live among them. The Innocent Anthropologist nearly got him kicked out of the entire discipline uh, because of its honesty, but also because he skewered some of these uh, anthropological sacred cows like um, fieldwork and the notion that the more miserable your experience is, the more authentic it is. Uh, they're hysterically funny books. I really urge you to read them. Uh, you'll see that I, I, I tried to read a couple of passages and I can't get through them without cracking up. So we talked about uh, the realities of fieldwork, uh, where the discipline is going today, uh, his odd attraction for monkeys, and why fiction tells us more than anthropology about what it means to be human. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. Nigel Barley, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Hello. Hello, Ryan. It's nice to finally uh, finally connect up with you. I've been wanting to, to speak with you for quite a while, and you were hard to track down. As, were you on the road? No, no, I've been I've been a good COVID boy. I've been sitting here quietly, doing nothing more exciting than feeding the ducks. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll get to your your uh, encounters with animals, no doubt, within this conversation. So I wanted to focus on the Innocent Anthropologist trilogy because it's um it's such a wonderful portrait of of people in place, and and they're also ridiculously funny. Uh, they're among my favorite in the entire Elan catalog. But also, I did an undergrad in cultural anthropology, so there's so much we could draw on for this. But I grouped my questions into a, several different kind of themes and things that were interesting to me. Well, first of all, how did you come to anthropology? I don't think I've ever heard. Was it because of the highly lucrative career path? <laughs> no, I don't think so. A qualification in anthropology, even in, in the days when I was a student, was your instant uh, tissue, uh, instant ticket to unemployment. Um <laughs> I was a teenage modern linguist, uh, which was very lazy of me. I mean, I, I did a degree in French and German simply because that's what I'd done at school and nothing particularly excited me about uh, university. Um, I went off and became a teenage, late teenage metal broker. Um, I worked in the city. I dealt in speculation in uh, minerals on the London Ring. It was a totally sterile and depressing existence. It created nothing. You simply located yourself between a producer and a consumer and skimmed a profit off the top. I hated it so much that I found it uh, hard to get out of bed in the morning. Mm. Um, I was absurdly well paid. In fact, it would take me 10 years to get back to that level of uh, remuneration again, but I couldn't bear it. And I thought I must go back to university uh, what can I do? What can I do? I'll do business studies. So I applied to Oxford. I got in. I did business studies for three whole days. 
the people who were doing business studies were exactly the same people that I'd been with in the city. Uh, and it was, I remember sitting in the library and reading an article entitled Generating Dynamic Need for Baby Products. The wave of nausea swept over me and I laid the book aside and I thought I shall go off and I shall do something at which I will never be able to make a living, but which just might be interesting. And I picked up the Social Science Research Council handbook, which was in alphabetical order, and I started at the front. And I became an anthropologist. If I'd started at the back, I would now be a zoologist. So I phoned up the Institute of Social Anthropology. I explained my situation. And my uh, future tutor, Edwin Ardner, um, listened to my tale and said, tomorrow I will be walking from the Institute to St. John's College between 12 and 12.08. You can come and put your case to me. So I did. And he told me what to write in my letter of application. And I wrote it. And I became an anthropologist. And I've never regretted it. It seems like a lot of people come to anthropology by such a roundabout route. I mean, it's not, that was similar to my case as well. I was studying um, political science in the uh, uh-huh. Canada's capital, I, mainly because I was interested in joining the spy service. In my twenties, I had this this uh, notion that it would be a good idea to yeah to join the Canadian spy service. So they, I met with some people who who told me what I should study, and it was investigative journalism or or international relations. And by the time I, I got to the fourth year, I thought, Jesus, I don't like any of these people I'm studying with. They were horrible, <laughs> argumentative, you know, miserable. And I actually met with recruiters and I realized they're, these guys are just sitting at desks. It's not like in the movies or anything. So in a, in a fit of rage, I ended up switching to something I found interesting, which was anthropology. So, Well, I, I always had this fantasy that uh, a gentleman from a, a, a crack guards regiment would phone me up one day and say, Bali, we've we've been we've had our eye on you for some time. Come to my club and have lunch, and I would be offered a, a fast car and a blonde, and probably be given a gun. Uh, but that never happened somehow. No, no. I think the great game days are over. Although they might be, they might be <laughs> recurring. So, I guess it must have been quite early on in your in your studies or in your work that you hit on the sacred realm of fieldwork. And that's one of the things I really like most about your, your book is that you burst this bubble around fieldwork. So perhaps you could you could tell us a bit about the mystique around the whole fieldwork, um, rite of passage almost, and and what, what it was that you actually found. Yeah, well, for my doctorate, uh, I, I didn't do fieldwork. Um, I, I did a library thesis on uh, two magic books written in Anglo-Saxon. Um, which is uh, fascinating but unusual. And I, of course, it was always, you will never be a proper anthropologist until and the expression was, until you get your knees brown. Uh, and it was very important to get one's knees brown. Um, and actually, I taught anthropology for a couple of years at UCL in, in London um, without doing fieldwork. And it, 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 you were always regarded as, you know, not having really got the full pack. Um, and I decided uh, I would go and do fieldwork, largely really because I'd been teaching all these received orthodoxies, and I didn't really know whether any of them were true. So um, because I'd uh, studied under an Africanist anthropologist, I was sort of by contagion immediately an Africanist. And I went off and worked on these uh, this people called the, the Dwyos. The Dwyos about 14,000 people, I don't know where they stand now, um, who live up and around the base of a mountain in North Cameroon. 
Um, and they were there really unworked on because uh, they were they were the difficult squad. Uh, they weren't very uh, obliging towards anyone who came and tried to live with them. They had a pig of a language with tones, uh, which had never really been studied or written up. And there were no grammars, there were no vocabularies. So I, I got, as we say, my people. And I went and went off to, uh, to study the Dwayo people of North Cameroon. Um, and in the course of that, I mean, well, the, the idea is, of course, you should spend at least a whole year there to get the full annual cycle. Um, and I ended up, I suppose, spending a total of about 18 months, two years in various visits. Um, and uh, it really opened my, my eyes to the whole, the whole business of the mystique of fieldwork and what you get out of it and what they get out of it and how it's done. Um, and of course, it, it bore no relation to, uh, to the way it was depicted in the, uh, in the introductions to those learned monographs that have been the subject matter of anthropology. So what, what sort of advice were you given before you set out by your colleagues? Well, I was sent on a course of how to buy a camel, which wasn't really... <laughs> Not terribly practical there, no. Really very, very helpful. And uh, there, there was sort of, you know, various ideas about. One of them was that um, the greater your suffering, the more valuable your research was. If you didn't nearly die... Um, then it, it, you really hadn't, you know, had the full ethnographic experience. Um, another one was, um, it, well, it, it was it was all really about the idea of the the anthropologist as hero, you know, the lean jawed young man hacking his way through the bush and rapping out a few words in the native tongue. And I I met these people uh, at uh, anthropological conferences, and I couldn't really see them doing a whole lot of this. Um, I mean, one of, one of the things that really got to me was the fact that uh, they all claimed to perfectly understand the native language. You know, there were these great figures on Mount Olympus looking down, and they understood the slightest nuances of meaning. And these were exactly the same people who would turn up at conference and go into a fit of despair because someone tried to give a paper in French, which they, they'd all studied for seven years with the full benefit of dictionaries and grammars and all the rest of it, and they couldn't understand a word. Uh, so I didn't really uh, believe any of that. Um, and of course, I was absolutely right. I mean, I tried very hard to learn Noyayo. Uh, it came in two mutually incomprehensible versions. You'd have thought 14,000 people could have agreed on one version, but no, they had a highland version and a lowland version. And it was, as I say, tonal. Um, and I, I'm convinced that after the time I spent there, I didn't really get a great deal better at speaking the language, but they got much, much better at understanding what the hell it was I was trying to say. I was a bit like, you know, when you go and visit someone who's got a two-year-old child and they go, 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 and you say, what's that? And obviously he wants his toy. Uh, and it was exactly like that. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't the anthropologist who was in charge. It was very much, um, well, chance events, really. Uh, so the whole thing was not really an organized program of objective research, which is what it had been sold to me as. It was very much... Um, well, what's going to happen to me today? And if I can be 1% efficient and focused, then it's been a good day. Some of the, the interesting bits that you that you wrote in the book about this too, they, it seems to reflect a lot of what you see um, among the backpacking community, at least in the pre-internet age. When I first started traveling, like 
the idea that if the anthropologist doesn't like anything he encounters among an alien people, then it's ethnocentrism. There's something wrong with you. But if you, you know, if yeah, you disapprove absolutely. of if you disapprove of anything, no matter how how heinous it is, you're, <laughs> but so, yeah. and the inverse is also true, right? Like you wallow in this misery, and and it's more authentic somehow. That's true. Um, I remember one particular colleague who uh, told me about her fieldwork, because women are very important in anthropology, uh, which you wouldn't really expect, given, you know, the nature of the lean George young man business. Um, and she said, well, yes, she said, um, Cameroon, I was there. Mm. Oh, I had a lovely time, she said. Um, of course, I, I, I nearly died of Bill Hartzia. Um, and there wasn't a lot to eat. Um, and then I got dysentery. And then there was this initiation thing where, well, I mean, you know, women had their own business and you were sort of humiliated and rolled in stinging nettles and all that. It was a wonderful experience. You'll love it. <laughs> it's exactly like backpacking. Like I, you, you meet these people who who had been to some remote village in the highlands where they're they're the only foreigner, then they couldn't speak the dialect, you know, they get ringworm and amoebic dysentery. And and then they argue all night about who who found the most authentic culture. But everybody with a lonely planet was just going to the exact same places. So it was like a it's like a misery competition. Well, I, I sort of had my uh, my encounter with 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 those people in reverse. I mean, I I came back and you know, well, we talk about. But I, I wrote this book called The Innocent Anthropologist, and in in my innocence, I didn't change any of the names. I thought I mean I thought you know backpackers turning up up a mountain in West Africa. That's not going to happen. But they did. People would turn up using this book as a guidebook, and they would harass these poor village people oh, no. who had no idea what was going on and who these people were, and they had no facilities for dealing with them. And I feel very guilty about that, but it was sheer innocence. Um, and subsequently, of course, whenever I've written, um, I've, uh, I've changed the names of people and places. Um, well, except in one other case, which was also a very bad experience in that when I was at the British Museum, we had a collection of uh, funerary screens from a people called the Calabari of Southern Nigeria. And I wrote them up and, you know, I went and did the field work and studied them in situ and so on and so on. And someone said to me, you see, if you write the names of the villages and you identify all these things, then people won't be able to sell them in the international art market. So you're guaranteeing they'll stay in place. And I did that and subsequently found that the book had been used as a handbook by thieves, gangs of thieves, who went and stole these things and put them on the art, international art market. So again, uh, I was a very uninnocent anthropologist. Well, so I, I should actually, I didn't mention that. The, um, so the trilogy is The Innocent Anthropologist, Plague of Caterpillars was the second one, both of which deal with uh, Cameroon and Not a Hazardous Sport takes the story to Indonesia. So yeah. A couple of things I, I thought were interesting about from the first book, you said that the Duayo had no concept of friendship. That was to me the hardest thing. I mean, I, I lived in that village for a long time. You know, I would sit in my hut in the pouring rain of the African monsoon. And I would just be so lonely um, because amongst the Duayos, a man's friends, and of course there's a big distinction between men and women, a man's friends are the ones uh, with whom he's been circumcised in the bush. Now, the Dwyers practice an extreme form of male circumcision. They peel the penis for virtually its entire length. Um, and there's a high mortality rate and all the rest of it. Uh, and it, it's the absolute 
distinction between being a child and being a real man. And you get all sorts of virtues by having been circumcised. I mean, it does wonders for your sexuality. It shows you're brave and you're a real warrior. And the other part, oh, you, you can also swear on your knife, which is a big male thing. Um, and the other thing is that you get this group of friends that you go off into the bush with for nine months and you suffer all sorts of hardships and they are your friends and they're the people you can open your heart to, as they say. Um, and apart from that, they, I mean, there isn't, they don't seem to have this notion of, you know, someone could wander into their village and by sheer niceness and charm and personal attraction become a true friend. So not having been circumcised with them, I couldn't be their friend. So, I mean, as I say, it was desperately lonely, which was to me, for me, the real difference with Indonesia. Because if you've ever been, you will know that it's impossible to stay anywhere in Indonesia, even for a few weeks, without making friends. And they're good friends, they're real friends. And, you know, years later, they're still friends. Um, and to me, that, that was the fundamental difference in, in the two experiences. So how were you regarded as an outsider then? Well, like, where did you fit in the society? I didn't, of course. I mean, people make another thing that, you know, you're told as a student of anthropology is that you have to find some way of fitting in. And there are various ways of doing this. One of the best ways, of course, is to go with children because children break down barriers and they, you know, run in and out of other people's houses. And they realize that, you know, if you're married and you've got children, you're a proper mensch. Um, well, I wasn't, and I didn't have children, uh, so I couldn't do that. Uh, and basically, uh, I was off the map. I mean, there was nowhere for them to fit me in. I was just, you know, that crazy white man. Um, but that was sort of good in a way, because African villages, despite, again, what anthropologists will tell you, are extremely boring. Uh, and uh, many people, like in English villages, are, are really rather bored most of the time. So having a crazy white man around to laugh at, you know, what did he do last week? Have you heard the latest? Um, was rather good for them and rather good for me. And, and, and I was sort of indulged as a harmless eccentric. Um, the only bad thing about me was that I attracted outsiders to the village. You know, people from the government, policemen who came to see what I was really up to because all this anthropology nonsense was clearly something made up by some foreign government who wanted to spy in the village and all that sort of stuff. Um, but apart from that, as I say, I was a, sort of a licensed jester, uh, and that was my that was my role. That, that that was where I fitted in, if I fitted in at all. It's quite amazing the notion that you'd be there to spy on something like what the hell is there to spy on in a place like this? Well, I mean, if you if it, it sounds crazy, but then the whole idea of trying to explain to an African policeman why the foreign government should dispense huge amounts of money to send this strange person to sit in a village where the people are known to be particularly difficult and uncooperative with the government, right near the border with Nigeria. I mean, what could he be doing? He could only be a spy, couldn't he? Hmm. It seems you also were, you're, you had a key role in buying an awful lot of beer for people. That, that, yeah, well, that was a good way. I mean, in theory, of course, in anthropology, you're never never supposed to remunerate informants because it uh, it prejudices the whole process. But I mean, people have busy lives. They've got to have a reason to spend time with you. And one of the best things I could pay people in was, was tobacco, which uh, 
they uh, they all wanted, they all used, and they couldn't really get hold of because it was only sold in the city. But I could, so uh, I suppose I was uh, like the East India Company. I was a pusher of uh, uh, harmful drugs, mm. um, and of course also beer. Um, I mean, they have their own beer, which is really. Uh, a mixed blessing. Um, is, this, is this a village beer or the French beer that you wrote about? It's uh, well, their own beer um, is made from fermented millet. Um, it, it, it it sort of tastes like cold porridge um, with a sort of bitter edge to it. Um, and of course, it was only after I had quite a bit of it I realised that they actually fermented it by giving to giving the millet. To, to old women to chew, who then spat it out so that it fermented. Um, so I don't know how many uh, stomach bugs I uh, I got through that. Uh, but to them, of course, it wasn't it wasn't drink. It was it was called food, and they categorised it as food. But if you could uh, drop, you know, the the rain chief and the local village chief, the odd bottle of beer, that also got you a got you a, a good amount of toleration. I had a quote here. You described that some French beer. They're, they're keen customers of the breweries that produce the 33 beer, a mark of a previous French administration. It's peculiar to quality is that it, it enables one to pass directly from sobriety to hangover without an intervening stage of drunkenness. That's uh... <laughs> It's nicknamed Le Marco, the hammer, <laughs> uh, and it lives up to that. So which was, which was worse? Well, the, uh, the village one was actually, uh, you know, at least nutritious. So you mentioned uh, rain chiefs. Witchcraft seems to seems to play quite a cr- prominent role in this society. The, the, the whole business of the explanation of misfortune, uh, you know, is is a, is a standard topic uh, in anthropology, um, and witchcraft is quite often invoked to explain misfortune, um, which of course is quite difficult because it reinjects malice back into the community. So it tends to be very divisive. Uh, but of course, uh, ancestral uh, intervention in human affairs is, is actually more frequently invoked uh, amongst the Dwyers than, than witchcraft. It, it's, it's interesting that uh, witchcraft accusations are much more clearly established uh, amongst the Dwyers because when someone dies, you can pull their head off and you can see if they actually were a witch or not. So there's none of this sort of open-endedness that you get in in a lot of African witchcraft accusation. When someone dies, you actually find out once and for all whether they were actually a witch. And then, of course, you can retrospectively uh, establish what happened and who was responsible for what. So what what was the sign of this? If once you pull the head off, what do you find? Uh, you have two. You have two sort of hooks under your under your skull when you. The burial procedure in, involves pulling the skull off the body, and and you examine it afterwards, and you can see whether they were actually witches or not. But as I say, it's really ancestors who are the um, the fly in the ointment, and they're always causing trouble in human affairs. And of course, you have to go and make offerings of beer to them. Um, and 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 gain their uh, their help, or at least uh, mitigate their malice. The other great force of malice, it seemed, that you encountered quite regularly was the bureaucracy in Cameroon. It's, is it worse than German bureaucracy? It's less efficient. Let's put it that way. It, uh, it it it's quite. It was quite staggering to me. I mean, I I I imagined, you know, in Africa things would be sort of laid back and fairly uncomplicated. But of course, they they been a French colony. Um, 
they had an enormous respect for pieces of paper with little stamps on. In everyday life, it wasn't a problem because, of course, you were away from all those people. But getting in and out of the country was an absolute nightmare. Ultimately, got to the point where I had to apply for an entry visa in order to have enough time to apply for an exit visa so I could get out of the country. <laughs> and the, I'm sure that the only way I got out of it is, is that because I took someone from the French embassy to lunch and I said, how do I do this? He taught me something which has stood me in good stead in it, ever since. And we said, don't tell the truth. Make the facts fit the form. Mm. And so I had to, in, uh, no one would believe that I'd been in this wretched hut up a mountain in Cameroon. They all believed I'd secretly been living with some woman in the city and all the rest of it. So I had to invent a whole new hidden life uh, where I'd lived in Yaoundé and I had to produce receipts for my servants, wages and all that, because of course you couldn't be a, a European in, in Africa and not have servants. So I, I, as I say, I had to establish this sort of phony existence. In fact, I, I could well, you see, have, have been a spy for Her Majesty's Secret Service because I had to go through all this business of fakery and, and, and spurious uh, identity simply to get out of the country. Well, you've got me wondering now, actually, that's how much of this book is real. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You see, The Innocent Anthropologist is, is the book which they will put on my gravestone um, because it's the one that I'm generally known for. Oh, that, by the way, I always thought was a turn of phrase, but I, a few years ago, went to a, a funeral in Oxford, and I actually saw a gravestone where some academic had put his publications on his gravestone. Well, there couldn't have been very many if he, uh, <laughs> if he, if he all fit on there. That's amazing. I, I, I didn't know people did that. Anyway, but you see, it wasn't the first book I wrote. Uh, the first book I wrote uh, was when I came back from fieldwork, and I wrote the standard anthropological volume, Symbolic Structures of the Dwyos for Cambridge University. Uh, and I wrote it, and it was full of diagrams, and it was full of structuralism, which was quite popular at the time. And having finished, it took me, well, gosh, I don't know, over a year anyway to write it. Um, and at the end of it, I sort of looked at it and I thought, well, I don't know, it's not right. So I rewrote it and still wasn't, rewrote it, still wasn't right. And I couldn't work out what it was. Each time I, I rewrote it, I felt less sure about it, and it got shorter. So I thought I'd better stop before it totally disappeared. And I sent it off, and it was published. And then it suddenly occurred to me what was wrong with it. Um, and it was that there were no human beings in it. I mean, there were structures and diagrams and beliefs and rituals and all that, but there were no people. There were none of the sights and sounds of Cameroon. There was none of the sensations. There was no humanity in it. So I sat down and wrote what it was really like, and that was The Innocent Anthropologist, and it took me about six weeks to write. That's amazing. Uh, I had lots of paper left, um, and it just showed that, you know, it was really all inside me the whole time uh, waiting to come out. And of course, subsequently, people have said, look, you wrote these, these two books about your time in Africa. Which one is true? And I said, well, you know, they're both true. They're just written from totally different perspectives. Um, and it was really the innocent anthropologist that sort of put my foot across the line into travel writing as opposed to anthropology. Had you done any of that sort of writing before this? No, absolutely not. Um, 
I, I've never really written anything except a, a thesis. Uh, of course, it's uh, it brought down um, a certain amount of uh, wrath, professional wrath on my head. <laughs> I can't imagine that happening. <laughs> I wrote I wrote this book, The Innocent Anthropologist, and I showed it to my tutor uh, at Oxford, and he shook his head and he said, I advise you, he said, never to publish this or you'll never work as an anthropologist again. So I thought, well, I don't know. It, 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 there's something here that has to be said. And I sent it to every publisher in, in, in the UK and they all wrote back with the same thing, which is, you know, well, we, we, we read it, we liked it, it made us laugh. Anthropology doesn't usually make us laugh. I'm sure you'll, you'll understand we couldn't possibly publish it. So I put it on my wardrobe. And then a few years later, I joined the British Museum um, as a curator, an African curator. And much to my surprise, they published it. That year, the, at the meeting of the professional body, the Association of Social Anthropologists of Great Britain and the Commonwealth, someone uh, suggested that I should be thrown out of the professional body for bringing the entire subject into disrepute. My little book had brought the whole of anthropology into disrepute. Um, and I'm immensely proud of that. It, it, the motion wasn't actually passed, I have to say, but I still feel it was like a professional award getting that. I, I was saying this to Barnaby when we did a podcast earlier. It's about the only readable anthropology book I've ever read, like uh, the ethnographic um monographs are famously obscure and then just misery to plow through with all those bloody kinship diagrams and all this <laughs> stuff. I mean, this, this really brought it to life and, and uh, injected a dose of reality. And I'm sure it must've put to shame so many of your colleagues who couldn't write like this. That's probably what they were really bitter about. Yeah, the interesting thing, of course, is, is now that it's used as a sort of introduction to anthropology. So quite often it's the first book that kids read when they join an anthropology course at a, at a, at a British university. Has it influenced the dropout rate at all or the, or the uptake <laughs> of field work? Is... I, uh, I, I hope it keeps them going, actually, gives them encouragement that, you know, there, there is room for humanity within anthropology. And it, you said you published it, um, the, or the reason that it was picked up was because of your choice of dessert. Yeah, well, again, you see, I mean, look, I've written biographies. And when you write biographies, you think you've got it right when you've established lots of nice straight lines of cause and effect and motivation and ambition and attaining. Life isn't really like that, of course. I mean, you're like one of those ball bearings in a bagatelle machine. It's full of false starts and, you know, being flipped back across the board and so on. Um, yes, I mean, I, 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 the only reason I ever became a published author is because of cheese. Um, I mean, as the new boy at the uh, museum, I was invited to lunch with the director and various other people were there, various other curators and so on. And there was a man in a blue suit and not many curators wore blue suits, even in those days. And he and I both decided we'd have cheese instead of, you know, the pud. Uh, so we went over to the cheese table and we got talking. And um, he said to me, um, I said, uh, I'm from British Museum Publications because they ran their own printing house. Um, they're short of titles this year. I don't think you've got anything. I said, well, I have, but I, I don't think, you know, you really think it was suitable. Oh, he said, send it across and we'll have a look. So I sent it across and they published it. And uh, as I say, you know, the rest is history. I, I choose the cheese as well most of the time. So that's <laughs> perhaps I'll, I'll have some luck like this too. <laughs> One of the other things that... Um, that I wanted to talk about 
uh, you're menaced by a wide range of creatures. And th- these are some of my favorite scenes in the book. You're, you're harassed by bats, mice, cicadas. And, and my favorite one, I have to read this bit, was the goat. Oh. You, you say, goats were a constant curse. One had to learn to take precautions against. I had a standing feud with an old billy goat who loved nothing better than to creep into my compound at two o'clock in the morning and jump up and down on my cooking pots. Chasing him away secured relief only for an hour or so. After that, he would come sneaking back and perform an encore, kicking my gas cylinder with his back hooves. So this, how did you ever end up dealing with this creature? Did, did you find some, some way to make peace with him or a truce? Literally and metaphorically, he got my goat. Um, I, uh, I, I, I basically just got them to build a higher fence. Um, <laughs> simple as that. Did you ever read a book called... Um, uh, Isles of Illusion. No, I never did. The pseudonym it was written. The guys. It was called Asterisk or something. It was one of those um, century travelers uh-huh. uh, books from from ages ago. Some some guy who went and and lived on like a copra plantation or something in the islands. But he had an encounter with with a goat, and he he was terrified of them because they they would be preceded by their smell. You know, as they came through the jungle, they just reeking uh-huh. creatures. And and when they peeped around a tree, they looked like Satan kind of thing. There's I'll have to, if I can find a scan, I'll scan that and send it to you. You'll get a good laugh out of that. Oh, excellent. Yes, I'd look forward to that. For Dwyer's, they were all about incest, of course. So uh, they were, they were again, the embodiment of evil. Goats were? Yeah, yeah, goats were. Oh, well, it sounds like he was, this, this particular creature. The other, <laughs> the other incident that I, I had me on the floor completely was, um, was from the second book, A Plague of Caterpillars. You, you led in with, um, mosquitoes do not exhaust my charm. I have yet a stronger effect on monkeys. In England, this attraction remains latent. In Africa, it comes to the fore. And you talked about sitting there drinking a beer with some guy, and out of the corner of your eye, you spot a movement. At once strange and familiar, it was a monkey swinging through the trees. <laughs> I knew it was coming for me. <laughs> so if you, can, if you can remember, could you tell me the story about uh, your encounter with this, this creature in the theater? Yeah, I think I call it a baboon. I, I understand it wasn't a baboon. A baboon would have torn me to shreds. It was some kind of a small monkey. Uh, and uh, it was from the local zoo. Um, and its mate had uh, recently died, and it was obviously lonely. And the trees in the zoo had grown to the point where it could actually get up and get out of its cage. And this was sort of tolerated because it never did much harm. Um, but it came, I, I, I knew it was coming for me. I, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a strange fascination for, for characters of this kind. You know, when, when I get into the underground late at night, there will be the drunk who will get on. And there are endless possibilities of where he could sit, forget it. He comes straight towards me and he comes and sits down towards me and he's usually uh, belligerent and, and so on and so on. Um, or waiting at a traffic crossing in New York, the city lunatic will immediately home in on me and come and grab me by the arm and try to take me to some place that he wants me to go, and so on and so on. And 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 so it was sort of no surprise that the, the monkey immediately leapt onto my lap and put its arms around me and was terribly affectionate and all the rest of it. And I was quite happy with this, except I wanted to go to the cinema. And I hadn't been to the cinema for months and months. It was a real treat. It was my only, the only time I'd been in town for months. And I was determined to go. And every time I tried to sort of disentangle it from myself, it showed me these green teeth and sort of snapped them in my face. 
Um, and I, I can only suggest that it was a, a kind of local insanity. I determined I was going to the cinema, and if I was going to the cinema, the monkey was coming with me. And of course, we got into some huge dispute at the pay desk about whether you had to buy a ticket for the monkey and all the rest of it. And actually, it was perfectly all right. I mean, I took the, the monkey into the cinema. It was perfectly well behaved and it sort of basically fell asleep, except that the rest of the audience, of course, couldn't leave it alone and wanted to taunt it and so on and so on. Anyway, it, it was perfectly nice. I, I took it back, you know, after this date and put it back in the zoo and it climbed into its cage and went, it was a thoroughly acceptable affair. But it it didn't surprise me, as I say, in the least, because I do have this weirdness for attracting unfortunate animals and uh, people. Yeah, and you mentioned, too, there was some, I forget the entire scene. I don't want to give it all away because people should really read this. It's, it's hysterically funny, but how uh, it was well behaved until it caught sight of a red handbag on the seat behind you. And it just absolutely had to have this. Oh, gosh, yes, I'd forgotten that. And didn't you give it a mangoes or something, which it started pelting people with? So I don't, I think your rem- memory of this thing being well behaved was not, uh, <laughs> that might be a bit of a revisionist uh, uh, yes, yes. to make yourself sound, come out of it better, I think. It yes. sounded like it caused a lot well, of chaos. I must have edited that in my mind. Yeah, God, that, that's such a funny story. Yeah, people have to read that. <laughs> what sounds if I ought to read it? <laughs> I've been menaced by a few animals as well on travels, you know, charged by bison and, and attacked by giant cockroaches. So I can. I don't attract drunks so far on the subways here, but I mean, that's just probably because they're so pervasive, just about everybody in Berlin. <laughs> when I was reading your your descriptions of fieldwork, I, I remembered um, one of my professors who had studied in the North. He was called uh, he was called JP. It was a husband and wife team who taught this course, and they had both done their, their fieldwork in Northern Canada. And, uh-huh. and JP, every story seemed to begin with, you know, when I was in a glue lick... <laughs> And he was a French Canadian guy, and he he had an unfortunate lisp, which made meant he couldn't really pronounce any of the Inuit words. But in reading your book as well, it made me realize how how life shaping this guy's journey had been. Like, it seemed like he'd only really been to that one place entirely by chance because he just that's what was up for grabs in Canada, and that's what he chose. And because of his fieldwork, he'd be it sort of shaped him in such a way that he'd be enti- he'd be entire he'd be connected to that place forever, basically. Mm. Like the way that an arbitrary choice of destination opens up new opportunities and kind of connects us forever to that place and those people. It's travels very much like that as well. I find like the first place that you go to has an influence on everywhere else you go after that. And it's sort of you're, you're forever connected to that place, like it or love it, you know, or, or hate it. It sort of hangs over you like a like a miasma. Did you find this with Cameroon? In a sense, I did. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I was quite keen to go somewhere completely different, like Indonesia. Um, I mean, I have to say, you know, not having really a friend in that village, I never kept in touch uh, with anyone in that village in a way that I have with people in Indonesia who I would consider to be friends and, you know, whose children I know and who come and stay and so on and so on. I I think there is this, this great danger that, you know, if you go to one place, then you tend to see the entire world in terms of that place. I mean, that that's really just swapping one form of... <laughs> ethnocentrism for another form of ethnocentrism. You go to Africa and you find that Africans are not really like Brits. And you go to Indonesia and you have to sort of rediscover all over again that Indonesians are not like West Africans. Um, I mean, it sounds absurd that you should have to do that, but you really do. I can tell you the moment that I fell in love with Indonesia 
And I realized this is the place I want to work. And that was at Jakarta Airport. Now, I don't know how many people have fallen in love with the UK because of their experiences at Heathrow. I suspect not many. Um, and th this was the old airport, not, not, not the swish one that opened a few years ago. And it was like Heathrow. <laughs> they were constantly rebuilding it, but it never got any better. Uh, and they had this weird system whereby you, you landed at the international terminal and the domestic terminal was right next door, but you couldn't go from one to the other. You had to go outside, join an incredibly long queue in the hot sun um, and get in a taxi, which would take you all around the perimeter of the airport, charging you an exorbitant rate for doing so. And you would end up at the door of the domestic terminal, which was 20 yards away. Except, of course, you couldn't get there because they built this big high fence to stop you doing that. And of course, I arrived and it had been a long flight and I was worn out and peevish. And I looked at this and I thought, this is crazy. And I sat down on a bench to sort of gather my strength. Um, and there was a policeman next to me and I, I favoured him with my views on this subject. And he said, ah, he said, look, you don't worry about that. Look, don't upset yourself. See that door over there marked authorised personnel only. Go through there. You'll come to another door, a door marked danger of death. Go through there. Turn right and you come to a third door and that's marked emergency use only. This door is alarm. It isn't. Go through there and you'll be in the domestic terminal. So I did and I was. And I thought, well, what a wonderful place where the personal always overrides the institutional and where a policeman will tell you how to break every rule in the book out of sheer sort of niceness and humanity. So th that was something that could never have happened uh, in Cameroon. And that to me sort of encapsulated the difference between Cameroon and Indonesia. What was it that, that made you um, study Indonesia next after Cameroon? What was the initial spark? I, I'd always been interested in it. I had exercised some strange fascination on me. And one of the weird things, I mean, again, you see is these little sort of things that push you in a direction. When I won a, a scholarship to Cambridge to do my first degree, um, it was at the end of the, um, the, the sort of confrontation between the UK and Indonesia over decolonization. And I got this strange letter from the Indonesian embassy saying, you know, we congratulate you on your achievement and da 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 da, and we hope you will one day come to Indonesia. And <laughs> I have no idea who sent it or why, but it sort of stayed in the back of my head as, you know, Indonesia is a friendly place, a triumph for the public relations department of the Indonesian embassy, I think. I, I mean, as I say, the minute I sort of stepped off the plane, uh, it was confirmed it was a good place. You went to Sulawesi, right? And you, your goal was to study ancestor cults and traditional buildings? I joined the British Museum. I was an Africanist, which meant that I looked after, as we condescendingly say, West Africa uh, and, of course, North Africa, which fell in the same remit. Um, but I, I'd always been keen on Indonesia, so I'd actually learnt a bit of Indonesian. Um, and uh, there was a plan... Uh, at one stage, to do a big Indonesian exhibition in London. And the chap who looked after Indonesia at the embassy was really interested in India and wasn't in the least interested in Indonesia. So we were asked to send someone along to the meeting, and I said, well, um, 
I just do happen to, 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 to speak a little Indonesian, so perhaps I should uh, go along. Uh, and I did. And uh, thus I managed to stab my colleague in the back and uh, encroach on his patch and steal Indonesia from his portfolio and make it my own. Um, and I was, uh, as part of this sort of proposed huge exhibition, I went to, to carry out what was called an ethnographic uh, what reconnaissance of uh, Sulawesi. I mean, I actually read it all up in, beforehand, of course. Um, and I knew that uh, there were wonderful uh, architects there who built these beautiful traditional carved and painted traditional houses. And it seemed to me, you know, this was all very interesting. Um, so really, I just went to have a sort of uh, a look, a snuffle and a prod um, at Sulawesi. And once again, it was sheer serendipity. Um, I met a chap in the hotel there who was from a distant mountain village. And he said, I'll take you. He said, one weekend, I'll take you. So he took me off and um, I slept in this place and woke up one morning, went out onto the balcony. And there was this tiny little old man who was carving. And he was producing this wonderful carved panel full of geometric motifs and so on. And I just watched him for hours. And I thought, you know, that's wonderful. Um, it would be fantastic if people in London could actually see this. And it was attractive as an idea because, you know, one, it wasn't the traditional idea of anthropological collecting where you go to a place, you put everything that's nice in a box and you send it back home. Um, it was a traditional skill, which was sort of under threat because, of course, nowadays everyone wants a concrete bungalow. And it seemed to me, again, it was this sort of humanizing thing. One of the things about uh, the museum that I worked in, although it was called the Museum of Mankind, is it didn't really have any human beings in it. It had lots of objects, but no human beings. And I thought it would be a wonderful thing if one could actually bring a family of carvers over to the museum with some raw materials and they could build, carve, paint, decorate this uh, lovely traditional structure in the middle of London. So that's ultimately what happened. And that, that was the exhibition that I ended up doing. Um, absolutely crazy. Um, I, I, I would never even attempt it now. Um, it would probably be impossible to do because of all health and safety regulations and immigration and goodness knows what. Uh, but uh, I mean, an important part of anthropology and an important part of travel writing, I think, is, uh, is youth um, and the assumption of immortality and omnipotence. Uh, life wears you down after a while and you begin to think that uh, you begin to see the problems rather than the benefits of everything. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I didn't know you were at the museum already by the time you had gone to Indonesia. I was always under the impression that the um, the exhibit came about after you you were already there, and then that's what led to your employment at the museum. No, no, it was the other. It was the other way around. Um, it was uh, it was a dastardly plot on my part to grab Indonesia, which I uh, I I had visited before and knew was a good place. This that brings up a couple interesting things, both the, that incredible exhibit and your first encounter with the place, like you, you wrote um, upon your first encounter, you were, you were quite annoyed to find you bumped into Christian people. And I had not come so far to meet Christians. He said to see people who doggedly refused to accept the picturesqueness I wanted to thrust upon them. Where were the strange customs and odd rites? you know? So this propensity of both anthropology and, uh, and travelers to kind of project the exotic onto people and then to expect it to live up to it. And you see a Seven Eleven or something down the street and you, 
to come away with thinking like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, those collections of uh, anthropological photographs where they, you know, ask the, the, the natives to dress in local dress before they take the picture and are careful to keep the other white faces out of shot. Yeah, there, there, there is that. Um, you couldn't really get away with that um, amongst the Taraja because the chap I was staying with had a qualification from uh, the university, Bandung University of Technology, and he was actually a much more modern man than I was uh, and much more high-tech than I was. And I remember talking to his children um, and, you know, asking them what they thought of, you know, coming back to the village from the town. And they said, ah, oh, they said, actually, we like Singapore. <laughs> you like us? Oh, they said shopping. Uh, so they were thoroughly modern. The, the other thing that really um, spoke to me as well, you said for a Westerner, life in Indonesia is a series of blows to the head. Oh, yes. I, I lived in Japan for a couple of years and uh, yeah, I can... I can really relate. I don't know how many times I damaged myself. I nearly knocked myself unconscious once. Mm. Well, on more than one occasion, but it's a tradition in Japan to clean the entire house at New Year's. And my wife is Japanese. So we were in her, in her hometown and I had to participate in this. Her father didn't have to participate at all. He just sat in the corner, but all of us and her brothers had to, had to scrub down every surface in the house. And I was assigned to some remote hallway in the back because my cleaning abilities weren't up to Japanese standards. But I turned around and brained myself on the on the door, top of the door. Everything went foggy, and my <laughs> vision went in inwards, and I could just see sort of a cone. And I staggered into the broom closet and hid there because I think it was the first time I had been to there to, to meet her parents. And I'm bleeding from the top of my head from this door frame. So yeah, that's uh, your encounters with low hanging doors and everybody laughing at you. That's uh, that was very familiar. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I got into a, a Bemo, you know, one of these sort of little bus taxi things, and I squeezed in and everyone was very nice about me, taking up about twice as much room as everybody else. And when I got out, the driver turned around and said, ha, Raksasaturun, the giant is getting out. <laughs> <laughs> the other um, interesting thing I found about the, the ending of your book, when you brought these guys back to London to build this... Uh, this longhouse in the um, in the museum was uh, the way they turned the lens back on on our culture. Like you see their encounters with with London in the West, and the, one of the funniest things was when they came back from the park and they they thought everybody was insane because ever they were walking dogs on pieces of string. Or- yeah, they, they they really couldn't understand that. I mean, you know, in Taraji, you you might have a dog, but it just sort of hangs around the house and does what dogs do. You'd never allow it in the house. You might allow cats in the house because they have this thing of, you know, um, noble cats. Um, and they, they're supposed to guard the heirlooms from mice and they arrange marriages between the cats, dynastic marriages between the cats. And the cats are never supposed to touch the ground and so on. I mean, it's, it's sort of all about nobility and rank and prestige and so forth. Um, but yes, I mean, there were various things that they found very weird. Toilet paper, of course, they found absolutely disgusting. And that, that was a filthy habit. Uh, and of course, being in a mountain village, they just had water flowing down bamboo pipes the whole time from the, the mountain stream. So although they would turn on taps, they would never turn them off. It was there were also small satisfactions. I mean, you know, these were people who would uh, run over a, a mossy, tr- slim tree trunk with a 60-foot drop onto rocks beneath. And I would just have to get down and crawl on my hands and knees, but they couldn't stand on an escalator in the London underground without falling over. Really? The, the other thing too, the, um, the diet was funny. 
in their basic flexibility, only one thing it seemed was not negotiable. They had to have rice three times a day. <laughs> Attempts to wean them on uh, onto other kinds of food via spaghetti or noodles failed. They would try alternatives with deep distaste. Never complain, but not eat them either. I soon abandoned all attempts to vary the diet. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems, of course, is that an English house simply can't cope with that much rice going through it. Everything got clogged up with rice. Rice was everywhere. It was sort of, you know, like having a dog that shed hair in copious proportions. And it got absolutely everywhere. You, you would sort of find it behind the sofa and, and so on. Rice, 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 yes. And of course, they did this deal at uh, lunchtime, whereby uh, we'd arranged for them. I mean, they couldn't go without eating rice at lunchtime. So we arranged for them to go to the local Indonesian restaurant and pick up chicken and rice, which, of course, they loved because chicken was a, a real delicacy in, in Turaja that you didn't really eat very often. Um, so they were always happy with that. Um, and then one day I came home and there was that awful silence that every parent knows, you know, they're up to something. And I looked and they were watching a porn video. Um, and they'd done this deal with the waiters at the Indonesian restaurant whereby they would swap carvings for porn. Um, <laughs> while, while eating rice, I imagine. So that's one of the memories they took away from our culture. I have, a, I have similar issues with rice here. We have to import rice from Japan because of the unique nature of the Japanese digestive system. Of it's, course, no other rice will do. No, no, it's impossible. We'd be, become ill and die if you eat other foods. So, <laughs> One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, yeah, from, from the Africa books too, concerns kind of the future of anthropology uh, and the current sort of turmoil that we see in academia. Uh, you, you met this guy called Bob, an American. Mm -hmm. So you said he he had done something called black studies in an Eastern college, which this sort of thing was just coming up when I was when I was a student as well. And he held the view that it was vital for colored Americans to have an alternative cultural tradition that would assign them a higher place than did the white one. So he never celebrated Christmas, but an obscure festival of Swahili origin. And then he was mortified to discover that the Africans had never heard of it. So he had projected all these ideas onto the people there. And based on either something he'd been taught and things he had adopted at as his own practices. And when he arrived in Africa, he became quite disillusioned to find that it was just absolutely nothing like this at all. That, that's true. Um, I mean, I, I, there's a huge growth at the moment, of course, in travel writing, uh, in what you might call the heritage travel industry. You know, my parents came from Nigeria, so I go back to discover who I really am. Um, and of course, well, I, I mean, basically, that's a very racist view of the world, isn't it? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm determined, who I am is determined by my genes and where I came from. Um, but strangely, it's not seen as that. And I, I tend to find those heritage travel books, you know, very disappointing because they they, they tend to come to the same conclusion, you know. Um, I, I went back to Africa and I discovered how really British I am um, and that, you know, I really didn't fit in very well. Um, and there is this, in a sense, I, I mean, anthropology is going through the same epistemological crisis as many other parts of uh, Western culture. Um, I mean, it's really, it's lost its nerve, it's lost its self-respect, it's lost its, uh, its own self-confidence. There is this, this blindness, of course. Uh, as, a, as, as a person of whiteness, 
uh, and an anthropologist. Of course, it, there are all sorts of people who are eager to tell me that you know I'm a fascist, racist, sexist, uh, imperialist pig. Um, I mean, I went to a conference on women in Africa in, in, in New York some years ago, and I think the only thing, I mean, I, I was the embodiment of whiteness and empire and the evil British and so on. And I think the only thing that saved me was the fact that uh, Mrs. Thatcher was still around and the Queen was still around. Um, so I could introduce myself as from a country doubly ruled by women. <laughs> but there is all this. Um, and of course, there is something to it. But I don't think it, it invalidates anthropology. It doesn't also, I think, invalidate travel writing. I, I, I treasured a particular film I once saw about the, uh, the people behind the Malaysian struggle for independence. And they, they were filmed and they were, they were talking about, you know, how it was. And these, these, these chaps were all wearing houndtooth tweed jackets and they had horn-rimmed glasses and they had their pipes in their mouths. And then someone said to them, what was the very first step towards Malaysian influence? Well, they said, um, we, uh, we invited the governor around for tea and um, we said to him, now look here, we said, uh, all this British influence is just not on. And you, you realise that this form of you know, cultural lack of self-awareness is all over the place. It's not just anthropology. It's not just the West. It's it's everywhere. It strikes me as strange as well that for a discipline that that always focused on the importance of culture and finding what was universal about the human experience to suddenly start assigning so much meaning to these innate characteristics that are no more interesting than the color of your hair or just stuff, things that you can't control whatsoever. And, and these are supposed to somehow shape your entire identity and worldview now. Yes, and of course they make you a prisoner of your past. They don't liberate you in in any way. Though, I'm, I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, there are lots of anthropologists around who regard the word culture as an evil term and a wicked imperialist construction of the West. How did it get to this point? I mean, it's it's amazing. Well, what about what are your thoughts on cultural relativism? I mean, cultural relativism has uh, has done an awful lot of good to the world, I think, mm. um, by making us more sort of flexible and aware that there are other ways of living. And of course, I mean, the thing about cultural relativism is it tells you how some people do live. It tells you absolutely nothing about how people should live. That requires wisdom. Mm. And I don't think wisdom is part of acad any academic course, certainly not part of anthropology. I mean, all the moral judgments that people are eager to heap uh, on anthropology and its past at, at the moment, I think fail also to take into account the fact that those judgments too are subject to historical and cultural relativization. Um, you know, you can argue, you know, what was the American War of Independence all about? Was it about noble ideals or was it a bunch of uh, rapacious lawyers who didn't want to pay their taxes and wanted to get their hands in the till? And all these things are, are capable of different interpretations. Um, and as I say, I, I think that we have to take into account that our, we are going to be heavily disapproved of by the next generation and seen as evil in all sorts of ways. You know, we're not vegetarians. We're not ecologically sensitive. Look what we've done to the planet. Look what we've done to so many peoples who are dependent upon the ecology. Blah, 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 blah. You can see it all coming down the, the, the tube. Yeah, there's, a, there's an arrogance to 
judging people of the past based on the standards of today and not imagining that the same won't be done to us. Well, that, 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 that's sort of why I've, I've, in a sense, wandered away from straight anthropology or travel writing into sort of what you might call anthropological fiction or anthropological novels. Because I, I mean, something that's always intrigued me about anthropology is, of course, the point that you go off and you do anthropology in a place you know nothing about, where you don't speak the language, where you've got no contacts who could be useful to you, and so on and so on. And yet you you don't really work on your own culture, where, of course, you understand the nuances of language and behavior and so on and so on. And why is that the case? Uh, partly, of course, you know, it, it's because your own culture is invisible to you because you see the world through it. I mean, it's like your own nose. You don't see it, it's right in front of your eyes and you look through it, but you can become an expert on other people's noses. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm, I'm now old enough that I can look at the world I grew up in and see it as an alien culture. Do you think that because, that's because you've traveled so much and studied other cultures and then come back and looked at your own with fresh eyes? Yeah, I mean, if, if you wanted to ask what is the ultimate philosophical justification of anthropology, then I think it's like the monastic life. I mean, it's the perfection of your own soul and the person you end up really knowing more about and discovering about is yourself and where you come from. Um, I mean, statistically, let it be understood that it's we in the West who are the weirdos and require explanation. Um, not the rest of the world out there, which, you know, really doesn't. Um, so I, some time ago, I wrote a book called Coronation Chicken, which is, it pretends to be a novel, but in fact, it's pretty biographical about the place where I grew up um, and the things that were of concern at that time to the people in that area. So there is a sense in which, you know, I, I would see myself as having brought anthropology back home. This is something I've been thinking a lot about as well recently. Because when I was younger, I came from a very small town in Canada, maybe 4,000 people. And, and everybody in the beginning says, you know, write about what you know or write what's familiar. And I thought I, could, I can't think of anything more tedious or, or miserable than that to write about. But this place is so dull. I want to write about Mongolia or go to these other places. Yeah. And I spent maybe 20 years so far pursuing that. But I'm increasingly interested in taking a look at this small town because I, I have a greater appreciation now for what's interesting about this place and growing up in this pre-internet age, you know, and in this, this sort of middle of nowhere little place and the characters. And so I wonder if that is something that comes either with age or, or just have, having so much travel experience that you can see this from a distance now. I think there's a lot of that. Um, I mean, I, I had a similar experience in that I grew up in a small village um, near Weybridge in Surrey, which is, you know, couldn't be more boring. Um, the men worked in the aircraft factory and they grew cabbages for excitement. Um, and it, it, I, I mean, I was always aware that there must be a more interesting way to live than this. And it, it was a very affluent area, but, you know, I was a poor kid, if you like, from the wrong side of the tracks. So I always felt this sort of sense of alienation. And even I remember going to school, you know, five years old, and realizing that suddenly these people all around me lived by a totally different map than the one that was in my head. And I think that probably was the key to driving me uh, ultimately to, 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 to being an anthropologist. You mentioned that your writing career has taken a significant detour since then from these, from these early books and from travel writing, uh, really. 
why did you pursue that path? And maybe you could you could talk a bit about your more recent work. Well, as I say, uh, travel writing is really uh, you know a young person's game, and the, the problem is that when you find somewhere that you really like and you feel at home, like for me, Indonesia. You really want to go back there. You don't particularly want to go to other places that might be less fun. I sort of wandered into this sort of mixed genre stuff um, because I looked after the the Raffles collection at the British Museum, which is a collection made by Stanford Raffles between 1811 and 18, well, 15, 16, uh, when the Brits briefly ruled Java um, as part of the Napoleonic Wars. And Raffles was a, an interesting fella, and he fell hopelessly in love with Java. He thought it was one of the world's greatest civilizations. He believed implicitly in civilization, and he didn't believe it had to have a white face. Um, so he made this collection really rather as a lawyer would collect exhibits to show it was a place of immense civilization. Uh, and of course, I, you know, I brought the collection together and studied it and wrote it up and did an exhibition and all that sort of stuff. And then one day when I was in Bali, I realized that, you know, every time I was in Bali, I was wandering along, walking in the footsteps of this German painter called Walter Spies, who was there during the, well, between the, the, the world wars and um, really sort of, well, if not invented Balinese painting, certainly revolutionized it so that, I mean, the town he lived in would is now the cultural center of the whole of Bali. And that is largely due to the influence of this painter, Walter Spies. So I thought, well, I, I remember I was having lunch with uh, the Malaysian writer, Tash Orr, um, and he was doing research for a book he was writing on Indonesia and wanted to know a bit about Margaret Mead, the anthropologist where she was there. And we got to talking about Walter Spies and the fact that no one had ever really written a book about Walter Spies. Um, and he said to me, well, you know, I suppose it's because he did so many things and you'd have to read German and you'd have to be an anthropologist, you'd have to work in a museum, um, preferably you'd be gay and da, da, da. And I thought, oh my Christ, this is my CV. So <laughs> that's really how the, the Spies book came about. But I, I thought I, I thought it would be like doing the Raffles book. You know, it would start with the collection and you'd see the man in the collection that he gave to the Bali Museum because he was one of the founders of the Bali Museum. So in my innocence, I went along to the Bali Museum and I said, you know, do you have the records of the original collection and what Walter Spies wrote about it? And they said, um, mm, they said, well, when was that? And I said, I told them what the date of the founding of their own museum was. And they said, um, no, they said, no, we, you see, this is a museum, we're short of space, we don't have any room for all that old stuff. Um, so I knew it wasn't going to work as a straight work of sort of ethnographic art criticism. And yet it was such a wonderful subject. And, you know, this meeting of two cultures that fertilised each other, that I felt it still had to be written. So I thought I'd write it as a novel. Which, and fortunately, a lot of Spies's letters have been preserved. So there is sort of some, some framework to hang it on. So I wrote this book called The Island of Demons, um, which someone is now trying to turn into a film. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, it would be interesting. I, I mean, I'm intrigued by the process. Uh, I, I'd love to. Well, I, no, look, let's be honest. All I really want is one of those canvas folding chairs with my name yes. on it. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, so really, um, I wandered into sort of anthropological fiction in that way, um, and then I sort of really kept going in the same direction with with, with other things. And the last thing I, I, I published was this book called The Man Who Collected Women. Now, there's a title that immediately shows a man wandering into a minefield. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, it was all about this uh, trader, Alexander Hare, who was one of the owners of the wonderful-sounding House of Hare, uh, which was a trading company that operated in the East Indies and India um, in the time of Raffles, in other words, beginning of the 19th century. Uh, and Alexander Hare was a, a strange man, um, he was a collector, but what he collected was ladies. And he set up this ethnographic serrali. He was fascinated by the racial diversity of Indonesia. Um, and he, he, he tried to collect as widely as he could. Um, and of course, every time the Europeans found out what he was doing, they ran him out of town. But this wasn't because they disapproved of him, think, think it was immoral. What they, what they disliked was that they saw him as having let the side down by having gone native. Um, and he had his own ship, so he went to South Africa where he got some black ladies and some Chinese ladies who were going cheap, and they ran him out of there. So he ended up going to the Cocos Keeling Islands, which, are, which were uninhabited islands off the, halfway between Australia and Java. And he set up shop there, and he has various sort of adventures there. And the interesting thing to me is, of course, they're still there. All the, the descendants of these ladies are still there. It's the only sort of Muslim enclave in Australia. Ah, so it, it's, it, it's deeply anthropological. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, once I sort of got wind of it and found that Hare's diary is in the British Library in London, I, I had to write the book. Yeah, uh, but of course, you know, it confirms me in everyone's eyes as a male chauvinist pig. Because you're because because writing about it, you're endorsing it, obviously. Oh, I clearly am. Yes. Or so if I'm not endorse, endorsing it, then I'm exploiting all those poor ladies. Would you say that's your? That would be the the biggest influence of anthropology on your work today. Would be that this propensity for researching this type of story, or were there any other influences that that continue? Yeah. Really, it's it, it's that um, it, it's it's again it, the, the the core of the problem is how can different peoples come to such different ideas about the world based on the same evidence? Hmm. And it's always you know, uh, it's sort of you know, this looks crazy. It must be anthropology, um, and that's really been been the core of it. But I mean, I always think there's a primal scene, and um, with me, it goes back to my first week at school, primary school in this little village in Surrey, um, where I was aware, as I say, if you know, how out of place I was. And I'd made my first friend. My first friend was Kevin. Kevin was wicked, which was his immediate attraction. And we were sitting one day and we were being, I mean, you know, this was the day in the days when the British Empire was still a considerable reality. And we were being shown proudly by our teacher the map of the empire on the wall. Um, and there were, you know, much of the globe was still in red, colored in, in, in red. And Kevin put up his hand and he said, Miss, he said, Miss, why is the empire red? 
Oh, she said, well, that, that's for the blood of the martyrs who gave their lives so that these people could experience justice and decency and fairness and democracy and so on and so on. And, so on. and Kevin said, well, yeah, but um, red's the colour of communism, isn't it? Does that mean we're communists? <laughs> and she, a very great patience started coming into her voice. And she said, no, Kevin, we are not communists. Um, it, 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 it's a happy colour. It's like... Santa Claus and 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 and, and pillar boxes, um, and you say, oh, well, yeah, actually, it's not red, is it, Miss? It's it's pink. Pink's for girls, and of course, all the boys in the glass went. Ugh. And he said, actually, he said, pink's for puffs. And of course, I, I was five years old. I had no idea what a puff was, for goodness' sake. But I laughed, and that made me guilty, and. It, it, was, it was extraordinary. It was like one of those scenes where, you know, the officers are cashiered and their, their sword is broken and their epaulets are ripped off. We were marched to the headmistress's office and we were accused of having made fun of the empire. Oh, no. Um, and she got out this plimsoll and she gave me a good thrashing <laughs> with it. Um, and I, it was a sort of great epiphany for me. I mean, it sort of associated, I suppose, in my mind, the idea of empire and uh, injustice and all, all that sort of stuff. It was an epiphany in that I, I realised for the first time that there's a difference between that which is forbidden and that which is wrong. Uh, and I didn't feel any sense of having done anything wrong. And I looked at Kevin and I thought, you know, as long as we stick to them, what the hell are they going to do to us? What can they do? And it was at this point that, he pointed at me and said, please, miss, he made me do it. <laughs> so there you are, empire and injustice are sort of fused in my mind. Well, that seems to be a theme with your with your work as well, the, the difference between what's wrong and what's just forbidden. Publishing a book like The Innocent Anthropologist was, was clearly somewhat forbidden with an unwritten rule there. You've also said in an interview with The Telegraph that fiction gives better answers than anthropology. I think uh, in a way... It does. Uh, in anthropology, you um, you have to be so careful about what you say and what you regard as evidence and how you generalise. Fiction is more relaxed. Um, as I say, it, uh, in the days when I studied anthropology, and I imagine when you did too, it was objectivity and factuality that, that was stressed. And of course, that leaves out everything that's human, you know, we are humans, we have a sense of humour, we interpret, we understand, we interact, we form relationships, uh, and all that was sort of thrown out of the window. And fiction allows you to put that back in. And who would you say exemplifies that? Me. Me. <laughs> yourself, beside yourself, I mean, <laughs> any writers that you would look to? As far as travel writing is concerned, I mean, I, I do like the old classics, you know, chaps like uh, Eric Newby. I enjoy very out-of-date travel writers because, of course, you see in them the things that they didn't see in themselves. There's this wonderful woman called, uh, what's her name, Mary Gaunt. Uh, she, she was an Australian who wrote a book called Alone in West Africa. She decided in, what was it, 19, it must have been 1912 because the book was 1914, I think. She decided to biff her way across West Africa because she turned up in West Africa and said, well, you can't do that, you're a woman. 
and uh, she was outraged because uh, she was convinced that the British Empire would fall because of these uh, faint-hearted English roses. What the empire needed was good butch Australian sheilas to put a bit of spine into the men of empire. So she, she did manage to set off on this expedition. And there's a wonderful moment, I, I can't quote verbatim, but it goes something like, she says, uh, and there I stood with my hundred native porters and my military escort, finally, totally alone in West Africa. <laughs> I, like, I like these older books as well. They're also a really good way to... Um plan a trip. <laughs> I mean, not to emulate that or hire a hundred porters, but, but I find Google and, and the internet is worse and worse for trying to fi- find interesting things about a place. So yes, I yes. often consult these older books to, mm-hmm. to figure out where people have gone before and also to look for uh, what are the cultural continuities between what they wrote about you know, 50, 100 years ago. And they gives you a clue to what's still the same in a place, I think, and, and a people yeah, I, I, I find my, myself more and more interested in, 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 you know, the historical aspect of things. There's some very good historical novels or the novels that capture a place really well. I'm trying to squint at my bookshelf here. It's, uh, speaking of Malaysia, there was uh, the Malay Trilogy. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yes. Uh, well, Anthony Burgess, I think, is probably my, my favourite author in fiction. I mean, you know, the, what's his book? Earthly Powers uh, is a... I haven't read that yet. I've got it here. Oh, do I? It's, it's a wonderful book because uh, it, as always with Burgess, it deals with you know huge cosmic issues, but in a way that makes you laugh. Uh, and he's wonderfully human and wonderfully perspicacious about humbug um, <laughs> and what human beings are really all about. I think that the test of the you know the Malayan trilogy is that actually Malaysians read it and see it full, as full of insight uh, and actually laugh about it. There's also a wonderful cartoonist called Lap, who uh, wrote a book called The Kampung Boy, which is all about sort of traditional Malay life. And he does these wonderful cartoons that sort of encapsulate key elements of, of Malaysian village life. Wonderful, wonderful book. So what's next for you then at this point? What are you working on? I've sort of gone off at a, a, an angle here. Um, I've got a friend who um, absolutely obsessed with Oscar Wilde. She kept pushing Oscar Wilde at me, and I sort of grudgingly started reading and getting into it and all the rest of it. And it occurred to me that, you know, after he got out of prison, Oscar went off to France and changed his name and became Sebastian Melmoth. Um, And he lived this sort of uh, excessive, well, he lived another five years um, uh, though he died quite young, of course. Um, and it occurred to me that it would be an interesting thing for Sebastian Melmoth to look back at the life of Oscar Wilde, which enable, allows you to sort of uh, fill in some of the gaps and take a, a sort of rather waspish Oscar Wildean view on himself. Uh, and I've, I've had great fun doing that. And that's just about finished now, though, I mean, as you know, uh, having finished a book is not a matter of fact, it's one of definition. So I'm at that sort of delightful stage where the book exists and I can sort of wake up at two o'clock in the morning and think, aha, that's what that sentence ought to be, and come down and, and put it in. So it's 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 provisionally called Purple Passages, uh, Sebastian Melmoth and Oscar Wilde. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. That sounds like a really fun project. <laughs> I hope so. 
Well, thank you very much for for taking so much time. That was that's just flew by. Well, it's good pleasure talking to you. So much we could pull out of these books. I'm I really strongly encourage uh, people who enjoy this this podcast or or these sorts of books to read these. I, I gave them all long reviews uh, on my blog a couple of years ago. I think. Oh, excellent! Good. I'll I'll look those up too. Thanks very much, Ryan. Great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on books about place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.